want to ask you today might sound like a very corporate kind of vomit-inducing question, but I want you to hang in with me, okay? So I want to ask you about your life's mission statement. Does your life have a mission statement? Now, I know a lot of us are repulsed by mission statements because we've seen office space and we think of like TPS reports and we think of like really mundane things when we think of mission statements and a lot of mission statements are just really unhelpful, you know, platitudes strung together. And some of you work for companies and, and they have mission statements and you hate your job and it's just like all these bad negative emotions. But listen, I am a believer in mission statements. I didn't used to be, but I am now. Because a mission statement's purpose is very simple. It is to give your life definition, to give your life focus. And y'all can tell me after the service if I'm wrong. But I think a lot of us know or we have some sense that our lives have purpose. If I were to poll, poll you or survey you, I would guess that most of you would say your life has some purpose or some mission. You're living for something. But if I pressed you further to clarify that, to boil it down into a succinct statement, I bet most of you would struggle with that. And that's because we lack that extra sense of clarity, that extra sense of focus. And when I talk to people who are struggling, whether it's in their personal lives or in relationships, a lot of it has to do with focus. I can't tell you how many times married couples come to me and say, we've just been drifting for years. Drifting is what you do when there's no focus. Drifting, whether it's in a relationship or your own personal life, drifting is what you do when there's no anchor to your life. So when I ask you what the mission statement is in your life, for your life's mission, I'm looking for that anchor. And I'm hoping that you can define it clearly and concisely. Define your mission statement. Uh, I have a personal mission statement. My wife and I, Giovanna and I, we have a mission statement for our marriage. And I believe every married couple should have a mission statement for their marriage that you revisit. And through premarital counseling, I usually walk couples through that. Let's, let's name the mission that you're on so that you can put it on your refrigerator door and remember why you got into this in the first place, you know, on the bad days, on the worst days. Remember what you got into this for and what you're supposed to be doing together. Gio and I have a mission statement together, and it's very simple. We, we want to bring as many people to Jesus as possible. And I know that sounds like a given. We're both pastors. But listen, if we don't name it, we can forget it. If we aren't both clear about it, I know it, she knows it. That's the mission of our life together. Our kids know the mission that mom and dad have together. Our family mission is a different deal entirely. Our family mission is based on Ephesians 5, where it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So our family mission statement is to serve and submit to each other as a family. So I, I think married couples should have a mission statement for your marriage. Families should have a mission statement. You, especially if you're following Jesus, you should have a statement of mission that defines what you're here on earth to do. 
We as a church, we have a mission statement. Some of you know it. Some of you know a longer version than the one I'm sharing today. This is the bare bones version of our mission statement. The story exists to inspire non-religious Houstonians to follow Jesus. And these are not platitudes. These were words that were thought about, prayed about, argued about for weeks. And every single word in this statement matters. We live by this statement. When our staff is trying to make a decision and we're at an impasse or when our leadership is at an impasse on something, we go back to this statement. And we always have since three years ago this month when I started taking flights down every other week from Kansas City to meet with people that were interested in starting something. This is the idea that we named a little bit after that, that we're here to inspire non-religious Houstonians to follow Jesus. So every single word matters. We exist to inspire. And that was carefully chosen because we want to inspire people, not, not scare them or coerce them or proselytize them or shame them. We want to inspire them. And so there's a positive, uplifting message that we want to share. That's who we are as a culture. That's how we define our mission. We want to inspire specifically non-religious people, which is a different kind of a mission for a church. Most churches want to inspire church people. And we decided from the very beginning we want to inspire non-religious people who describe themselves as atheists, agnostics, cynics, skeptics, spiritual but not religious people. It's who we want to inspire. And, and we are also specific in our mission to our context of the city of Houston. We want to inspire non-religious Houstonians, which is not the same thing as inspiring non-religious New Yorkers or non-religious Texarkanians or non-religious Austinites, Austinians. Is that good? Whatever. It's not the same thing because every city is different. Every Community is different. And so we want to be very specific about reaching out and meeting the felt needs of Houstonians. So Houstonians have a special set of needs, which is why I'm thinking about introducing our next sermon series as Houston, we have a solution. Tacos, Tahos, Jesus and you. Do you guys like it? Do you guys like it? I'm going, I'm thinking about going with it. So 50-50, stay tuned. That may be an exaggeration of what we do, but that's kind of what we do. We try to speak directly to Houston and what would um, resonate with our Houstonian um, neighbors. And then finally, the last part of our mission is that we want to inspire non-religious Houstonians to follow Jesus, which means that it's not good enough for us that people have some vague sense of some unknown God, some vague notion of the man upstairs or some unknown God in the sky who may or may not love me. Like we want people to know and follow Jesus, the one who came to show the world the true nature, the true identity of God. And so we, we name Jesus and not just God in our mission statement for further clarity. In every mission statement there is clarity. Every mission statement that is good is always simple, specific, and quantifiable. Simple, specific, and quantifiable. Another word for quantifiable is measurable. You want to be able to measure how you're doing against the mission that you've set out for yourself or your family or your marriage. 
Simple, specific, and quantifiable. Consider these really effective mission statements from the corporate world, like this is from Tesla. Tesla's uh, mission statement is to accelerate the advent of sustainable transport by bringing compelling mass-market electric cars to market as soon as possible. It's a little wordy, but very specific, and if you have looked around lately, they're doing a pretty good job at fulfilling their mission. Check out Google's mission statement. To organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. Now, just so we're clear, Google's mission is to make your information universally accessible <laughs> and useful. <laughs> FYI. Um, <laughs> and so uh, hopefully they're not as good at fulfilling their mission as I think they might be because it sounds very much like the beginning of a sci-fi movie <laughs> of some sort. <laughs> and Google's going to turn out to be like Cyberdyne Network or whatever from the Terminator movies. Wasn't it Cyberdyne? Anyway, talk to me after the service. So, um, so Google has a very simple, succinct, specific, and measurable um, mission statement. Not all mission statements are good. Bad mission statements are too vague or simply delusional, like this one that says to help make every brand more inspiring and the world more intelligent. Now, this sounds nice when it rolls off the tongue, and it it's very ambitious. There's nothing wrong with being ambitious, unless the company whose mission statement this is is the same company, Avery Dennison, that makes sticky notes. And if all you do is make sticky notes, I'm not sure you should be saying you're going to make the world more intelligent <laughs> through your sticky notes. You don't even make the best sticky notes. 3M makes post-it notes, and they're way better than your stupid little sticky notes, Avery Dennison. So you might want to rethink the mission you're on to make the world more intelligent. Um, sometimes you have to be a little humble and realistic with the mission statement that you declare. We've been talking about um, the book of Acts for seven weeks now, and we're wrapping up today with one of my favorite passages from the book of Acts in this series called Semi-Organized Love. What we're looking for is the mission of the church so that we can learn our mission, what it should be in life. And so um, the, the earliest church had a very clear mission. The mandate came from Jesus himself in Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We just baptized this morning at 940. We don't have any baptism scheduled for 11, but if anybody wants to do this later, come see me during communion. But I'm soaked from here down because one of the guys I baptized, the biggest dude I've ever baptized, 300 pounds. He's a linebacker for a college football team. And uh, we had too much water in the tank, so the stage flooded. So that was fun. But we're fulfilling the mission Jesus laid out years and years ago to make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, within that mission, the figurehead of the early church was Paul, who wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books and had a more specific personal mission for himself that we find in Acts 28, 28, where he talks about how God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. He knows they will listen because he spent the whole time in Acts preaching to the Gentiles and they're listening. So Paul's specific mission is to preach the gospel to non-Jewish people. And that's what he spends all of his time doing is bringing Gentiles to, to Jesus. So when Paul had this mission lined out before him to make Jesus relevant to Gentiles, he could then build a strategy around that mission to get him from where he is to where he wants to go. And that's the beauty of crafting a mission statement for yourself, your marriage, your family, your church. 
is that once you have the mission defined that you're on, you can then plan and strategize to carry out that mission. You're no longer wandering or drifting at sea. You have the anchor. You know where, where it is that you need to get as a family or as uh, yourself. So Paul's strategy for carrying out his mission, um, I think, is best outlined in one of my favorite passages in Acts. It's long, so take your study guides out. Maybe those will help you. It's one of the pages you received when you walked in this morning or just follow along on the screens. We split this passage up into three parts. I just love that we get a very clear glimpse of Paul's strategy because Paul's mission is not that different from ours here at the story. So here it goes, Acts 17, uh, 16 to 34. This is the first part of it. While Paul was waiting for them, and he's waiting for Timothy and Silas, his buddies, to come to Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue both with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, which is um, the hill of Ares. Ares was the god of war. The Greek name for uh, uh, Ares was Mars. And so Mars Hill, if some of you have heard of Mars Hill, that's where this was. And they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. And we would like to know what they mean. At the, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And the paragraph there is uh, Luke's editorializing, um, basically calling Athen- Athenians babblers, as the ba- they had called Paul a babbler. Paul's strategy, no matter where he went, was very simple. First, Paul started in any city he went, he started in the synagogue to find some like-minded Jewish friends, either Jews who already believed in Jesus as the Messiah or who were open to believing in Jesus, and then he would convince them, and they would go out into the city together, and they would learn the culture. Sometimes when Paul set up shop in a city for a longer period of time, he would start a business. He would set up a tent-making shop and just get to know the people and, and dive into the culture. Paul, this Christian leader, would listen to the people. And after, only after having listened to the people and having known the culture, would he then apply Jesus to the felt needs of the city, to the felt needs of that particular context and those particular people. This was always Paul's strategy, and it was no different in Athens. He didn't have as much time in Athens, so he didn't set up a a shop or anything. But he followed the the same pattern. Started in the synagogues, got some friends, went out into the city after that. What they found in the city of Athens was that ancient Athens was covered up with idols, monuments built to ancient gods, hundreds of monuments built to these ancient gods, gods of war, the god of the harvest, the god of wine, the god of irrigation. And and the idea was that you went to that god whenever you had a specific need that pertained to that god's specialty. So if your crops were dry, you went and gave an offering to the god of irrigation. 
if you couldn't get pregnant, you went and gave an offering to the God of fertility so that maybe that God or that goddess would no longer be mad at you and would give you what you asked for. And so Paul saw this happening, and he took it all in, and then he began to teach in the public square. He began to teach, and he got the attention of two groups of Greek academics, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And this is where it gets really interesting to me, because when I think about the Epicureans and the Stoics and what we know historically about these groups, I I realize just how little the world has changed and how similar ancient Athens must have been to Interloop Houston. I think we have a lot to learn from Paul's treatment with the Epicureans and the Stoics. Epicureans were agnostics. They were open to the idea of God. They just didn't care if God existed or not. They didn't live as though God existed. They lived for themselves because the highest ideal in the Epicurean mindset, the highest ideal was your own personal pleasure. So they were pleasure seekers. They weren't real opulent about it. I mean, it wasn't about, you know, spending a bunch of money and stuff all the time. But they just said, if you're going to do something, you should do it for your own pleasure, for your own happiness, for yourself to feel good. Because nothing matters more than that. What I'm about to say might sound offensive to some of you lifelong Houstonians. I don't mean it to be offensive or judgmental. But some of you who grew up here have no idea how different life is in Interloop Houston than just about anywhere else in the world. Nobody parties like the Interloop parties. I, it took me a year to get used to all the balls and the galas and the dances and the parties and even the birthday parties aren't just regular parties. Like you gotta go all out and you gotta have like wine at a child's birthday party. You gotta, it's just nobody parties like the Interloop parties. And, and, and it almost gives me the impression that culturally we're a lot like the Epicureans. We think that having a good time, our pleasure, our happiness is the goal, is the highest ideal. I'm not saying that's true for everyone here. I'm saying that for most of us, it's probably like a top three deal. You know, like personal pleasure is a pretty high priority, if not the highest. We're Epicurean sometimes, interloop Houstonians are. Or when I say interloop, it's not what it used to be. Like now it's the beltway, right? Like (laughs) y'all realize that I'm not talking about like this tiny little loop. I'm talking about the second loop. That's now the tiny loop compared to 99, which is the 600-mile <laughs> loop around Houston. Inner loopers, you know who you are, and you know you party too much probably. I'll just leave it there. That was the Epicureans. Then we had the Stoics. The Stoics um, were not like the Epicureans uh, so much. The Stoics were kind of the ancient Greek version of modern-day, new-age, hippie spiritualists. The kids that serve you coffee at your favorite coffee shop, in other words, or the people that live on my block in Montrose. If ancient Stoics somehow transported through time and took up residence in Houston, I'm convinced they would be renting in Montrose, but trying to get out as soon as possible because the yuppies and white bread families have moved in and ruined Montrose. So we're trying to go to Edo now. You know, they would, they would definitely fit right in with that crowd. And it's just interesting to me that there's nothing new about New Age spiritualism. It's, it's always been here. The Stoics were there. The Stoics were pantheists. The Stoics believed in 
a form of God, but it was more like God was the universe. You know these people, right? People that pray to the universe. And the Stoics, the Stoics believed God is the tree, and God is the sun, and God is the sky, and God is the wind. And when you get sick, it's the Stoics that will say to you, I'm sending all my positive energy your way. And all you want is chicken soup and a prayer or something, you know, and they're just sending you vibes, you know, and you're just like, you know these people, right? Like there's, I'm not judging, I love these people. I could sit and talk for hours, right? There's a reason why my family chose to live where we live, um, but, but they sound very, very familiar when you think of uh, how the ancient Stoics um, lived and, and thought. So Paul um, met the Stoics and the Epicureans. He met them on their turf, on their turf, on their terms, in their city, and spoke to their needs. This is the next part of that passage. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, I want to stop there just a minute and talk about this monument with the inscription to an unknown God. There are other um, non-biblical sources that corroborate this. There were actually monuments that were built to unknown gods, not just in Athens, but throughout the region. In fact, even today, if you go to places like some parts of China, other parts of East Asia, parts of Korea, uh, South Korea, um, you'll find um, these monuments, uh, these shrines that are built to unnamed gods. So local shrines that are built in honor of the unnamed god of the sea, for example. People go there and they give offerings to this unnamed, unknown god of the sea. But if you ask the locals if they really believe that there is a certain specific god of the sea, most of them will say no. And the offerings that they go and give to the god of the sea whenever the sea is acting up or there's storms coming in or whatever, it's, it's a just-in-case deal. Just in case there is an unknown, unnamed god of the sea, we want him to be happy with us. So we're going to keep giving money. And it was the same kind of thing in ancient Greece, this altar to the unknown god. Greece had hundreds of altars to hundreds of gods, but just in case there was one they missed that they didn't want to, to take off. This, this unknown God, they, they would put up an altar to that unknown God and, and, and people would go and give offerings. It was a very random thing. It was kind of like a heavenly, like an insurance policy of sorts, an a la carte kind of a deal. And um, it was very common uh, in, the, in the ancient world. And so Paul points it out. I've seen your um, unnamed God, this, this monument to an unknown God. To continue here, so you are ignorant, he says, of the very thing you worship, and that is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out of their, uh, out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. This is a quote here. It's interesting, there's quotes. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. 
Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man Jesus he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So I want you to see how Paul's strategy, before he gets to the meat of his message, to the truth that may, may offend some, he begins with respect for the culture he's in. He says in the very beginning, I see that you guys are very religious guys. I see your culture. I see your devotion. I see your monuments and your religion. And then he goes a next step further and he quotes their own poets to them by heart. This Jewish foreigner, this Christian evangelist, took the time to know the city to such an extent that he quoted their own poets to them. Epimenides is a, was a famous Greek poet. We think that's where Paul got that first quote, for in him we live and move and have our being. That's why it's quoted, because it was a famous poem. And the second quote was definitely from a famous Stoic poet named Aratus, who, who had a poem in which he said, we are his offspring. So Paul goes out of his way to have a tip of the cap to the culture that he's in. Before getting to the heart of his message, he lays the groundwork of trust and commonality by acknowledging, respectfully acknowledging, the culture that he was in. This is especially interesting since we know how appalled and repulsed Paul was by idol worship. Read any of his other letters and you will see how he was disgusted by the pagan worship of idols. But he didn't let that show in this moment. Because if Paul had led with that, what would have happened? everyone would have shut him down completely. He might not have made it out of Athens alive. If Paul had led with his disgust for their culture, instead of respect and commonality and mutuality, it certainly wouldn't have turned out the way that it did. Paul does not go on the attack. He keeps it civil. He's not a jerk about it. He doesn't say all that's wrong with Greek cultures. And this is why this matters, guys. I think it matters for us as Christians to hear this, because I believe the number one producer of agnostics and atheists in our culture is Christians who are disrespectful toward others and their cultures and their stories. Christians who criticize entire genres of music without taking the time to learn about or listen for the story behind that genre, the pain behind that genre, where it comes from, what it means, the artistry there. We just criticize and say it's not of God. Christians who care more about you voting the way they do than they care about you knowing the Jesus they claim to love. Christians who are judgmental toward people they call promiscuous, young adults who are promiscuous without considering the kinds of pain and abandonment that led to choices that people are making. Christians who just can't be quiet and listen to the culture around them. Paul took the time to listen and know the culture 
around him. He had his critiques, he had his disagreements, but he didn't start there. He listened to the culture, took time to understand it, quoted their poets. That would be like Paul coming to be a guest preacher at the Story Houston next Sunday and leading with a Bun B quote, leading with a Bun B lyric, and then throwing in some Beyonce lyrics midway through, and you guys would love it. You would be, I'll do whatever this guy wants. He's the coolest preacher I've ever heard in my life. That's what Paul is doing by quoting Epimenides and, and Aratus. And that's him calling right now. <laughs> to tell me how much he loves Bun B. I don't know. <laughs> sorry. I didn't. You deserved it, but I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Paul acknowledges he acknowledges their culture. He acknowledges their idols. I want to talk about idols real quick just because we can get a little confused and point the fingers at other idolatrous people, other idolatrous cultures without realizing how idolatrous our culture is. So idols don't have to be statues that are erected in the honor of some god. Idols can be anything that take the place of God. Idols are anything that you love more than God. And I know you're going to say, I don't love anything more than God. I'm a Christian. Okay, well, let's be honest. Because kids can be your idols. Your kids. Your family can be an idol. Your marriage can be an idol. And, and, and anything from, from career and money and power can be an idol. And uh, that's, just, that's just the reality of how this works by this definition. Your career, your popularity, your acceptance, your wife can be idols. Money, sex, pleasure, Aggie football, Astros baseball, I'll admit, nine straight. We have 41 and 16, 40 and 16, 41. 40 and 16, about to sweep the Rangers today. I might have a problem. That might, be, that might be an idol for me. I might have watched the game last night instead of finishing this sermon last night. That might have happened. And... I am like you. I've got, I've got idols. And so uh, here, here's the thing. The reason we worship idols is because God made us to worship something. And sometimes it's just easier to worship something you can see and touch than it is to worship the invisible God. And sometimes we choose the easier path. Paul says to them, you guys are worshiping all these idols, and you have an idol to an unknown God. So let me tell you about this God you know about, but do not yet know. This God was there at the beginning. He created all things. He created all people, all nations, all tribes. This God doesn't live in temples. This God doesn't need your offerings. This God doesn't need anything from us. He just gives to us. He gives life, and he gives everything else. And then he finished, and this is the end of that passage. It says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, a, and a number of others. As we talk about Paul and his mission, the church and her mission, I want to finish up with three questions for you. Three very simple questions. First, if someone audited your life, if someone performed an audit 
on the way you spend your time, your energy, and your money, and your talents, and your resources? How would they define the mission of the life you're living now? And this is just something between you and God. I'm not asking for a response. It hurts to think about, probably. But if someone performed an audit on the way you live your life up to now, how would they articulate the mission of your life? The second question I want to ask is what idols exist for you personally? What are your personal idols, the things that take God's place, anything from money and power to marriage and children? I'll stop there and get to the third question in a second. I want you to see that if you're honest enough about the first two questions, if someone audited your life, how would they write your mission statement, and then what idols exist in your personal life, you'll begin to see the correlation between those two things, between mission and idols. Because when something takes the place of God in your life, it's an idol. And when you have an idol, that idol is inevitably going to become your mission. You're going to end up living to serve that idol. It will become the thing you live for. So let me give you an example. If your mission is uh, not God, but if your mission is, let's say, financial security, instead of starting with God and saying, uh, I want to bless God and so I'm going to work as hard as I can and save as much as I can to be as much of a blessing of generosity as I can for God. You'll start saying things like, I want to retire a millionaire. I want to retire with more money than my parents had. More money than I ever thought I would have. So it becomes about you and about the money instead of the blessing. The Savior. If marriage is your idol. I don't mean you're already married and your marriage is your idol. That happens. But what I see a lot in our congregation is that for single people, marriage becomes an idol. And you're, you start to say things like, I, my mission is to be married by 30. And then it's my mission is to be married by 33. And then it's 35. You know, however that works for women and men in our congregation. Instead of my mission is to follow Jesus as closely as possible and share the gospel with as many people as possible. If that includes a spouse that I can share the gospel of Jesus with, then so be it. And if not, then so be it. But my mission is the gospel. My mission is Jesus. You see how idolatry can become the mission. The idol becomes that which we serve rather than the mission. And the most common idol, I think, in our context is the idol of children. And this is the hardest one to swallow. Because who doesn't idolize their children? You think your children are the best children. I think mine are the best children. We can't both be right. We idolize our sweet little precious children. And some of you think your mission is to raise the greatest kids who have all the opportunities that you never had growing up. So you say that or you live that way instead of saying, my mission is to follow Jesus. Or even, or even parents, you could say, my mission is to raise kids who follow Jesus. And the best way to do that is to lead by example. That would be fine. But if all you want to do is raise the greatest kids who have the best lives, then you're going to raise kids who believe they are the greatest kids. And no one's going to like them or you. 
and they're going to roll their eyes at your Facebook posts because they're so sick of your entitled little brats. When we worship idols, the idols become our mission. Which brings me to the third question. In spite of what your life's mission has been to this point, in spite of which idols you've worshipped up to now, what is it that you hope your mission statement will become? What will be the focus of the rest of your life? This one life God gives you to live on this earth, this one gift, what a precious gift it is. I want to challenge you to write, either today on your way home, right now, or sometime this week, to write a mission statement for yourself or your family or your marriage that is simple, specific, and quantifiable. And I encourage you to put Jesus at the center of it. And once you have that first draft of a mission for your life, you can adjust it, you can adapt it, but at least you have a starting point. At least you have something around which to plan and strategize, as Paul did, as the church did when it began. Monday night, um, a really good buddy of mine and a member of this church uh, had a swollen leg, and he showed it to me a couple days before that and said it was really hurting him, and finally his wife convinced him to go get it checked out, and so they went to the ER and uh, for a swollen leg, figured he'd get patched up and go home, some anti-inflammatories or something. Uh, he is still at that hospital. He's not going to go home for four weeks, and then he's going to be back in the hospital off and on for at least a year. Because while they were there, uh, they diagnosed my buddy, Casey, with cancer, with B-cell acute uh, leukemia, lymphocytic leukemia or something like that. I just messed up the name of it, but it's a very aggressive form of cancer. And Casey, whom some of you all know, he serves on a hospitality team. He's at every men's Bible study. He's 38 years old, five kids. Casey has an uphill battle ahead of him as the chemotherapy begins. As we speak, he's taking his second treatment, and he'll be watching this service online later in the week. As I sat with Casey this week in his hospital room, and he's got all of this struggle ahead of him, and he, his doctors are just making no bones about it. They're telling him everything that's going to happen to him. And they're giving him his chances of survival, and all this reality is coming his way. I know I'm supposed to be the one there encouraging him to be positive and taking care of him, but I swear to you all, he was the one taking care of me because I was a wreck. I was a mess. I've been a wreck all week long. It's just been awful. To think about this, and I can think about nothing else. And I sat there worried and afraid more than he was. And he said, Eric, if I had gotten this news two years ago, I have no doubt that I would have gone out and just ended it. I would have gone out and overdosed or ended my life somehow. I have no doubt because I was already there in my head anyway back then. He said, but then I found Jesus. I found the story on all of you. And he said, Jesus just transformed my heart and showed me that I have more to live for. 
he showed me what I'm living for and who I'm living for. And he said, I'm going to battle this cancer and I'm going to show my kids what it means to be courageous. I'm going to show everybody on this cancer floor who my Jesus is. And I'm, he said, I'm going to fight it. I couldn't believe his courage, but it occurred to me in that moment that Casey has figured out something the rest of us should figure out. He's figured out what it means to live with a mission, to live life on a mission, and a mission with Jesus at the center of it. And the idea that when you're living life on a mission with Jesus at the center of it, that not even a, a, a bleak cancer diagnosis can knock you off your feet, not even that can take you off the mission that you're on. Man, it's a beautiful thing. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be the church. So write those mission statements. Know what you're here to do. Anchor your life to something. Stop drifting in your life and in your relationships. Stop drifting. Just Live with purpose. Name your mission and strategize and live accordingly. That's what the church is called to do.